Okay, it's uh, three o'clock now. So again, those people are coming to the introduction to meditation class. That is being held in the room to my right. As you come out, go out of here, you turn right and it's the first door. That's the introduction to meditation class. This class here is for the experts in meditation. They were just so close to enlightenment. Well, maybe. <laughs> but it means you haven't, you're not here just to learn the basics of meditation. You know those, you just come to do some deeper meditation. So anyhow, with the, uh, the practice of meditation, you know it's almost impossible to find a perfect place to do meditation. Uh, simply because it's either too hot or too cold or too noisy. There's always something which disturbs you. And those disturbances can be all sorts of problems. And I still remember that, I don't know if it's still the case now, but sometimes there's one meditation retreat which I gave in North Perth many years ago, before we had Jhana Grove. And there were so many Thai, Thai young men came on that retreat. And I couldn't understand why. It's hard to see those Thai young men coming to the temple just, you know, for Vesak or something. There's a whole heap of them booked in for this retreat. And when I asked them, it was because one of the people on that retreat was a Thai film star. And she's a waste of time trying to go on a retreat in Thailand because she was too famous there. So she decided to come to Perth, go on a retreat here where she thought she could become uh, invisible. But unfortunately, the people found out and said all these young Thai men, they weren't watching their breath, they were watching somebody else's breath. <laughs> Anyhow, so, but the reason I said that is because there's also this other member of our Buddhist society. I think she was our vice president at this time. She wanted to go over to India to see the Dalai Lama. So she went there because she was vice president of a Buddhist society in Western Australia. Uh, you know, she actually got uh, precedence to go and uh, ask her questions from His Holiness the Dalai Lama. But while she was waiting for a couple of days for her uh, interview to take place, early one morning she went to do some meditation in the hall and she was meditating quite peacefully but then there was a big disturbance. This guy sat right next to her and you know he was a little bit noisy so she just turned to you know, see who the heck it was and it was Richard Gere. And that was the end of her meditation that day. <laughs> she couldn't stop thinking about him. But anyhow, this is one of the reasons why it doesn't matter you know, what disturbs you. You can always, and I say this very carefully, you can always sort of go past it. If it's noisy, it's not that hard once you know how, is to let the noise disappear. You just don't pay any attention to it. And the only way you can not pay attention to things like noise is just to see something more beautiful, you know, almost like inside the noise. You have that simile of the eye of a cyclone. In the very middle of it, it's always really, really quiet. And it's the same with meditation. In the middle of this moment, it's always that sweet, quiet spot. So if there is any noise outside, you just imagine that this noise is outside of you, circling you, surrounding you. 
but inside where you're sitting is this beautiful little cave. I don't mean a real cave, if it's a real cave you can't hear anything. But an imaginary cave and you're in the center, you can kind of hear the noise but it doesn't disturb you because you're right in the center of it. And I do the same if it's like too cold or too hot. Now fortunately, living in a monastery and living in a real cave is sometimes quite easy to avoid that heat and that cold. But nevertheless, you go to other places to meditate in the world and sometimes it is really hot, sometimes really cold. We're keeping the, uh, the fans off? Yes, because when you have air con, it cools the air, the cold air comes down, the hot air goes up. Turning the fans on actually mixes up the air. That's what I learned as a scientist anyway. So I think it's probably going to work. Actually, it feels colder once I turn the fans off. Is that true? That was in my imagination, yeah. So turn the fans off. And then we can be more chilled out. So when you sitting in a place which really feels hot, see if you can just calm the mind down, don't think about heat, and just let the body, the body can adjust pretty well, as long as it's not extreme heat or extreme cold, it's not going to be a danger to your health. I remember many times in UK, sitting meditation, it was really, it was snowing outside, there was ice everywhere, there was no heater, no cooler, you just put some robes on. Yeah, it was cold, there's many parts of my body I couldn't cover up, I had to breathe, but nevertheless, after a little while you were warm enough, uh, insulated enough, that soon it was fine and you couldn't even feel the cold. I often say that after a while, especially if you're walking in the cold, after a while, you know, your feet go numb so you can't feel the cold. That's a joke, okay, it's okay to laugh. Okay, was that such a bad joke? <laughs> But nevertheless, with the heat, so we don't make a big problem out of it, we sit. And one of the nice things about temperatures, they don't change that quickly. Which means after a while the body just can't do anything with it, so it just leaves it alone. It's this disappearing of things which are constant. Sound, it will be the sound of the aircon. I can hear it now. There is obviously the sound of my voice, but I'll shut up soon. And when something, some noise is constant, doesn't change that much, it disappears. So is the way that when I'm just watching my body, becoming aware of it. I often thought, how on earth can I get rid of this feeling in my bottom? Big weight pressing down on the muscles in my uh, buttocks against the cushion. And I think you all notice that after a while, because it doesn't change, because you're sitting there, it's the same feeling, minute after minute. After a while, the, the, the mind turns off from it. The feeling actually disappears. And, you know, I've been a monk for so many years, almost 50 years now. I've been meditating such a long time, had lots of interesting experiences. So, but I've only got so many experiences and I tell everybody about them at least two or three times a week. So you will rehear them every now and again, but one of the most amazing experiences I had was when I was a lay person and I went to a, a retreat in a Zen monastery in the north of England. 
And there for the first time, I was told to meditate with my eyes open, looking, facing a whitewashed wall. It was a converted barn of a farmhouse. And as I was doing this, I had enough understanding about how to be in the present moment and how to be silent. And that was very important because that allowed me to be able to uh, just be peaceful. When I was watching this whitewashed wall, my eyes were open. I wasn't thinking or daydreaming. That was an important part of this experience. And because I wasn't thinking or daydreaming, I was in this moment watching this whitewashed wall. That was when, amazing experience, the wall vanished. It, kind of, it just disappeared. And what had happened was my sense of sight had turned off, even with my eyelids wide open. I couldn't see anything. And of course you've soon realized that this is nothing sort of psychic or supernatural. All it is, is if you look at something and it doesn't change, and your mind is quiet, and it's obviously I'm looking at the, the beautiful scenery outside, you know, through the glass windows in the front of this hall. So it's much more difficult if something's so beautiful. But if it's just a whitewashed wall, something boring, and it stays the same, and your mind is still enough, then the wall vanishes, the sense of sight turns off. And I realized how important that was to understand what meditation does. What you're doing, you're trying to keep everything as still as possible, no, not too exciting. So after a while, your brain feels this is not worth paying attention to. It just turns that sense off. So that's how you turn off the sense of sight. That's how you turn off the sense of smell, taste. That's how you turn off the sense of physical sensations. You're sitting and you can feel all sorts of stuff in your body. But as long as it doesn't change too much, it says it's constant, it doesn't get really painful, it doesn't get sort of uh, change at all. And after a while then the body turns off. You can't feel anything in your body. That's what I call the body disappearing. Of course the body is still there, it's just that your awareness of the body disappears. And so you can imagine what that must be like. The body awareness, the awareness of the body vanishes, you can't feel your legs, your hands, you can't feel your head, you can't feel any heat or cold. It just vanishes. And then you, people are quiet, so you can't really feel or hear sound. Just the sound of the air con, the same all the time. Sense of sound disappears. Smell, taste, sight has already got your eyelids closed. I often notice that when I close my eyelids, I see the inside of my eyelids for a few seconds, first of all. But that doesn't change much, so then my sense of sight vanishes. Imagine seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting and touch all vanish, they turn off. What's left? And of course in Western philosophy they say, well that's it, five senses, that's all we've got. But anyone who's done meditation enough and who can allow, I mention this, allow the five senses to turn off. They don't do the turning off, you allow it to happen. 
then after then you realize you're still very much aware. And what you're aware of at this time is usually if you have been watching your breathing, it feels like you're watching a beautiful breath, a delightful breath. It's actually the breath, it's not watching the breath, you're knowing it. The mind sense takes over. The sixth sense. And in Eastern religions, Eastern paths, Eastern philosophy, we've always had that sixth sense of mind. I often joke that the Western philosophy lost its mind many years ago, in a, in a real way as well as in the uh, metaphorical way. And you can prove that to yourself. When those five senses vanish, you become really peaceful. You're still aware, but aware in a much more refined way. And that awareness which you have is joyful, much more joyful than any other of the five senses. When you've just got the mind. And first of all, why is it joyful? Why is it that the breath becomes delightful, beautiful, gorgeous? Why is it when you see some of the lights in the mind, which are mental, you're not seeing it physically, why are they so intense and gorgeous as well? And it's because the mind sense, when it's not bothered with the other five senses, gets very pure. And it is much more beautiful than any of the other five senses. I always think it's because when you have these five senses you have to be concerned about, it's like a bother, it's a burden. But when those five senses start to vanish, it's much more peaceful and beautiful. So that's one of the reasons why you understand what this mind actually is. You experience it and it's so enjoyable. When that starts to happen, when you get the joy in the meditation, you know, you notice it's because the five senses have began to vanish. And that joy in the meditation is quite addictive in a very beautiful way. That's why the Buddha said, I can show you the quote in the suttas afterwards, in the Pasadika Sutta, Dika Nikaya, anyone who gets addicted to the pleasures of the mind, there's only four things can happen to you. And those are the four stages of enlightenment. Stream winner, once returner, non-returner, or full enlightenment. It's good, the Buddha encouraged it. So this is where we're letting go of the five senses to access the sixth sense of mind. And to keep that mind uh, dominant during the meditation. So you know what's happening. And the mind gets stronger and stronger. You get some beautiful experiences in this meditation. Some are weird experiences, but they're totally safe. And it shows just you know, the spiritual power of this meditation. So anyway, uh, that's what's going to happen, I hope. And I'll just, before we start this meditation, I'll do a guided meditation for the first 15 minutes. Just to remind that this is the ongoing class of meditation. If you come here for the introduction to meditation class, they're just you know, learning the basics, that class is being held in the room to my right. This is for the ongoing meditation class. If I talk about 
allowing the five senses to disappear and getting blissed out. Some of the people in the introductory class will get freaked out <laughs> instead of blissed out. So anyway, so let's begin. In order to allow those five senses, especially the sense of touch to disappear, it is important you get into a very nice posture. I'm glad you've got one of those chairs. Can you hold that chair up? For those who haven't seen this before, it's a very beautiful way of sitting. It's a Zen stall. And we, they used to be so popular in this room years ago, but you're the only one actually using it today. So well done, that's why I just asked you to. Is it comfortable? Yeah. So we usually have a few spare somewhere. And back here. So if anyone wants to try it out, it just takes away a lot of the pressure from your knees and you know, supports your bottom you know, by transferring the weight uh, onto the legs of that stool. And it's much more comfortable. I just got used to sitting like this for so many years. So don't really need it. But anyhow, so to start the meditation, please get your body in a comfortable position as best you possibly can. And then when it's reasonably comfortable, and you close my eyes. Ooh, I need to rehydrate. And I always begin with awareness of my body, first of all. I do this for two reasons. One is to make sure my body is comfortable. Because you can't assume it's comfortable. You've got to be much more uh, precise. And number two is because when I sweep through my body, noticing the feelings in my body, it does start to anchor my attention in the present moment. Because the feelings in the body are only happening now. I'm not thinking about how I'm going to be or how I was. It's just how it is right now for me. Uh, I start with my feet. If I yawn just now, I slept well last night. I did that because as I am becoming aware of my body, I let my body do the yawning or the moving. I don't do anything. I'm aware and I respond appropriately by letting my body do what it needs to do to relax. And I usually start with my feet. What do I mean by that? Be aware of your feet. And I developed a little technique of asking. I ask my feet, how are you? It's like I've been talking to a few people about you know, having a pet, cat or dog, and take them to the vet and they need to be euthanized. You can't just kill them. So I advise just have a few quiet minutes with your pet. Hold them and ask them the question. Do you want to go or do you want to carry on? 
You ask a question like that, you just be mindful, aware of what this little being, a cat or a dog, wants to do. And it's not that hard to know. There's some beautiful results from that. So you ask your feet, how are you? Do you want to move? And if the answer is a certain yes, please adjust your feet so they're more comfortable, actually. <laughs> my feet, when I stop talking to you and pay attention to my own body, they do need to move. Oh, wow. I feel so much better. It makes it more possible that your body can disappear when it's comfortable. And once my feet have been cared for, I go up to my ankles. I deliberately have awareness of how my ankles feel. And I get to know my body well enough. They may feel comfortable now, but is that a position where they can maintain their comfort for the next 40 or so minutes? If the answer is yes, then just move further up the body. I go to my lower legs, the calves, the muscles there, the skin, the bones, anything I can be aware of. I let my attention settle there and I pick up so many things I never expected. Sometimes I imagine my, that part of my body to be tight. How do you relax it? You loosen everything. Lessen the tension you know, in your uh, tendons or muscles. Imagine there have been bunches of strings being pulled apart and you loosen every end. So nothing is being stretched. Nothing is being squashed. So the legs feel at ease. Sometimes they imagine that they're being soaked in a warm bath. There's no pressure on them at all. And they're expanding, becoming more at ease, more peaceful, more comfortable. And when my lower legs and I go up to my knees. When I can experience the feelings in my knees, again I expand them. I imagine because a lot of pain and, and stress comes when things are squashed. I just want to make it big. So it's at ease, it's loose. It's not constricted. Just an imagination. But then my knees start to feel at ease. You can actually notice relaxation happening. At least that's what it feels like. When my knees are comfy, I go past them up my thighs. Big muscles. They never seem to have any aches or pains, but nevertheless, 
I just get to know my thigh muscles and relax all of them. And from my thighs, I go up to my butt. And as I said earlier, I can feel the, the pressure, the feeling of something pushing on those muscles of my butt. And I know that there's no way I can suddenly adjust my bottom so it doesn't feel that pressure. But I do know if I just make sure it's even enough, calm enough, then it won't get worse, it won't get better, it will instead disappear. It's a feeling which my brain is used to. It knows it's not dangerous, it's not going to kill me, it's not going to get worse. So the brain turns off from it. It's like a, maybe some app you have on a computer, it's not interesting, so it just turns off. And then I go up to my waist, check that out. Yeah, it's just like yesterday, last night, my belt needs adjusting. As soon as I feel that, I don't sort of question it. What are you doing that for? If, if my waist says, please loosen the belt, I will do so. I'm not pampering my body, I'm caring for it. Ooh. And then I check the waist. And I like this little stretch of my back. It makes my waist feel good. And then I relax my back. And the waist and the back feel just really good. And I go down to the bottom of my torso and start just to scan upwards. As I scan upwards of my torso, if there is any stomach ache or any other ache or pain anywhere in any of the organs or any of the muscles, I can feel it. And again, over the years you learn how to relax parts of the body you don't even know what their name is. You feel them, experience them. And relax them. So any aches and pains get less until they vanish. And scan that all up my intestines, colon, to my stomach, past my stomach to the lungs and go all these organs in my back. Don't know, sometimes I don't know which one's which, I don't really matter. If there's any feeling there, I just notice it, relax it, and it gets much, much, much less.
until eventually I come to my my shoulders. I was going to say what I've said for the last three or four times, my shoulders are all, always so sort of a bit tense. But today, they're already relaxed, I don't know why, maybe the heat. So I experience the sensations in my shoulders and make sure that they're fully relaxed. Not 90%, but 100%. And none of those muscles is being stretched, being pulled. Nothing is being squashed. Everything feels free, comfortable, at ease. Just like maybe your favorite armchair at home. You can sit in it and the body feels so comfy there, it doesn't want to get up. We have one of those armchairs in our monk's quarters. Every time I sit on it, I don't want to get up. And then once the shoulders are really at ease, I go down my arms to my elbows and make sure the elbows feel good. And if ever you hit the elbows or you sprain your wrists, it's an excellent method to relax everything, let healing happen faster. Pass my wrist to my hands, check my fingers. And I just adjusted my fingers to make sure they're in what my fingers know at the most comfortable position. I just got used to this. So now my whole torso from the bottom of the torso, above the butt, up to the shoulders and down the arms to the fingers. I've methodically relaxed every part of them. So now I go up to my head, starting with the neck, making sure that the head is well balanced on top of the neck. But also today to make sure my robe is not cutting, and it is at the moment. So I'm going to adjust that. It's better. And make sure the head is well balanced on top of the neck. And lastly, I go to the front of my face. Muscles around the eyes, the, the nose and the mouth. I kind of love doing this. Because I've learned the art of relaxing the muscles of your face. When I do relax them, the face feels free, it's not being pulled or stretched or squashed. And I know the cause of that deformation of the facial muscles is the emotional world of fear or anger. That's why you can read a person's emotions by how their face looks. And once my face is relaxed, it's like my whole body is being put at ease. And I know those feelings which remain, they're comfortable, they're not changing. So my body can remain still. And I know I don't have to force it to be still. I let it be still. 
it was the most comfortable position. And I also know that in a few moments, all those feelings in the body which remain, because they're minor and they're comfortable, they will disappear. So any experience of the body will vanish. My hands will disappear, my legs will disappear, my back will disappear and a lot of other things will vanish. So much busyness will have been settled and disappear. So once my body has been relaxed, then I just notice peace. How peaceful am I right now? I use the concept of peace because that's what everybody can experience. And they can recognize that's a quality of the sixth sense of the mind. It gets you in touch with your mind. And once you're in touch with your mind, you really get to know how the peace gets deeper, more stable. And as it gets more peaceful and stable, the peace just grows. And when it grows to a point that it's delightful, you're just happy just to be here watching peace. not taking notes, the peace eventually deepens into silence. You're just aware inside. It's only a matter of a short time when the experience becomes more delightful. It's like, you know, you're free from so many burdens. The burdens of seeing, hearing, smelling, taste and touch. free of these things, you go to the world of the mind. By mind I don't mean like fantasizing or imagining. Because if you go off into fantasizing or planning, remembering, you lose your peace of mind. Peace is in this moment, that's where it lives. You don't do anything to experience peace. You just stop doing things. And then peace is the default state. And those of you who have meditated in your breath, the breath will come up by itself when it's ready. You don't need to invite it in. You just let it come in when it wants to. And then your breath is always very delightful, very easy to watch. And then after a while the delight gets so strong you realize you're not watching a feeling anymore. You're knowing the breath. The sixth sense of mind is becoming dominant. And the other five senses mostly disappeared. I'm going to be quiet now.
Getting close to the end of the meditation now. How did it go? How do you feel right now? How much of your body disappeared? How much of the mind dominated? And what's the result? How peaceful do you feel right now? And how relaxed is your body? When the gong finishes sounding for the third time, please come out from the meditation. Opportunity for a few questions. Is there any questions from the audience here, first of all? Okay, let's try the from overseas. We have one from Sydney and two from Germany. From Hart Nonji from Sydney. Is eradicating body sensation vipassana the only way to enlightenment, or is there another way? Can breath awareness meditation lead to enlightenment? Thank you, Ajahn Brahm. Of course, the only thing which leads to enlightenment is the eightfold path. And you know, samatha and vipassana always have to come together. Eradicating body sensations is not a uh, uh, a description of enlightenment. Eradicating body sensations, which I was just talking about, is learning how to calm them down so they can disappear temporarily, which gives you access to the mind. And then when you have the access to the mind, the sixth sense, then things like the jhanas can happen. And it gives you much more detail. What I say as an ex-theoretical physicist, it gives you more data, which you can actually see, great insights. It also serves to eradicate the five hindrances. So you can actually see not what you want to see, not what you don't want to see, you see what's actually true. So the way to enlightenment always has to be the Eightfold Path. You have to keep things like precepts, your virtue, your right view, and also just the renunciation. And then eventually the eighth factor of the Eightfold Path is always jhanas. So if you have a look how the Buddha taught, the only way to enlightenment is the Eightfold Path. From Germany, dear Ajahn, do you have any advice 
what to do when the mind is scared of entering deeper states and leaving the known behind. Many thanks. It's remember that listen to some good teachers, read some of what the Buddha said, and you'll be told that this is what happens. You know, this is a path which you do need to take. I'm not sure maybe because I started doing this when I was young, and younger people always seem much more courageous. Sometimes they call them stupid, but it wasn't stupidity which allowed you to get into deep meditations. It was just, you know, you understood there was something about these deep meditations that was beautiful and wonderful, so you didn't mind allowing yourself to go into those deep states. They were scary at first, I must admit. Even the Buddha mentioned that. When you go into some deep meditation, the mind has come across fear. Fear is a sign you're letting go of something you're attached to. If you didn't have that fear, you wouldn't have any attachments. But you find that what you're attached to, you know, the things like the body and the world, they're not really worth holding on to for a while. You just let them go for a few minutes or an hour or whatever, and you get into some deep states of meditation. And they're gorgeous. You do that once or twice, you never get afraid again. But the fear is real. The best simile for that fear, which we know these days, is when a person's been in prison for a long time, 20, 30 years, for some terrible crime they did a long time ago. And the idea of being released, and going outside of you know, that institution which they've got used to, out into the, the big free world, is a scary prospect for them. But you knew who've never been into prison, you who have you know, lived in this outside world, mm -hmm. you know it's not anything to be scared of. You get used to living outside in the big world. But for a prisoner, if they're going to be released this evening, of course you feel a lot of fear. You've learned how to survive in a jail. Now this like, new uh, place called freedom, how are you going to cope with that? So that simile makes it quite clear, it's worthwhile facing that fear, going past it. And for many meditators, it's like, you know, you're getting very deep in your meditation, and it's like, just even like the, the bliss of the jhanas, it's just right in front of you. And you say, oh no, 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 that's a bit much for me. And then you think, well, it looks so nice there. No, 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 I can't do that. But it's so, so compelling, it's so gorgeous, it's so beautiful. And in the end, it's like you say, oh, what the hell, I'm going for it. <laughs> it draws you in. It's the joy, the bliss of those states is what overcomes fear. Just go for it. And it's also the fact if you've got some good teachers, they will brainwash you. You've just got no choice. You see this gorgeous states. Well, you know, my teacher says it's okay. Oh no, I know it's a bit scary. But he says it's really brilliant. Oh, yeah, it's a bit scary, so what the heck? And you go for it. That's actually, but it's great if you experience that fear. That's very, very common. That shows you are getting close to deep states of mind. Just go for it. They're gorgeous. You will never regret it.
from Germany. Dear Ajahn Brahm, what is the best way to meditate when you are chronically ill and you're afraid and scared? It gets worse. How to relax and calm down? It depends what the chronic illness actually is. But I always thought that you know when people came to see me and they had some really bad illnesses, they said they could meditate. It was like a challenge to me. I said, well listen, can you be in the present moment? I said, yeah. And said, can you be aware of what's right in front of you? Yeah. Can you be kind? Yeah. That's all you need to do. That's the Emperor's Three Questions meditation. It's extremely powerful. Now is the only time you have, ever. What you're experiencing right now, what's right in front of you, is the most important meditation object to follow. And what do you do with it? You're just kind to it. You open the door of your heart to whatever you're experiencing right now. But Ajahn Brahm, it can be so painful. Yes. But when you add care to whatever you're experiencing, you start to experience you know, the, one of the wisest similes the Buddha ever gave about the anger-eating monster. Get out of here, you don't belong said the guards of the palace to this monster while the emperor was away. Emperor came back and noticed a huge monster, smelly, violent, every unkind word, unkind thought, unkind deed, the monsters kept on getting bigger and more ugly and violent. Till eventually the emperor came back and said, welcome, the door of my palace is open to you, whatever you want to come in, thank you for coming. This was taught by the Buddha. And when the emperor gave kindness to the monster, the monster kept getting smaller and less violent until all the people working in the palace saw that and they started giving the monster foot massages and pizza and cups of tea with condensed milk or whatever you like. And at that, the monster got smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until it vanished completely away. And that's in the Yaka Samyutta. It's not quite how the Buddha taught it, but it's basically the idea of an anger-eating monster. This is not just a being, but just a state of mind. You say, get out of here, you don't belong, I don't want you. And it makes it worse. You give it kindness and it actually disappears. It's worth a try. If it's a chronic disease, you know, you've tried so many other ways to uh, get through it. And this is, I didn't say get rid of it, to get through it, just go right inside of it, come out the other side. And this is actually one of those ways. Real example, Ajahn Chah, he told me that, like many forest monks, they had uh, malaria. Sometimes he used to call it like forest monk's disease. So he had malaria and you get the attacks of malaria whenever you get a bit weak or tired or whatever. And he had so many attacks of malaria. The way he defeated the malaria, he said one day he was having a malarial fever and so he decided to meditate and 
go right inside the fever, go to its center. That was like the perception. And he said, in the center of that fever, it was like being in a burning forest. Where he was sitting in the center, it was cool. But he could feel the heat all around him, surrounding him on all sides. And it was cool where he was sitting, in the center. And then he could perceive that the heat was getting stronger and stronger and stronger. But he wasn't feeling it, he could perceive it. And it got so strong that it exploded. And that was the last time he had malaria fever. Interesting, that's how he explained it. So you can work that out for yourself. But chronic disease, instead of fighting it, go into its center and be kind to it. See what happens. Okay, there's only three questions there today. Is there any questions from my audience here? Eddie. Thank you. Ajahn Brahm, um, this is a meditation question, okay? Yeah. But I'm referring to last night's talk, you know. You, yeah. men you mentioned that you went to Penang oh, and yeah. that this doctor asked you to do blood oh, tests. Yeah. Yes. yeah. And then you mentioned about like, uh, what your way is like through meditation. Yeah. Yeah. Me immediately when you said about this, I got you, I understand you, you know. Yes. You know, the power of meditation, okay? Yeah. So what I'm ask you is, is it Ajahn Brahm? Regarding medical, uh, medical treatment, okay. On the one hand, we have the modern, you know, medical treatment, which is very powerful, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, and it's scary too. You know, you have to go through all these tests and all this thing. You know. On the other hand, we have the Buddha's teaching, you know, like okay, which is I would say, if you really understand it, more powerful, you know, more healing. Um, Qualities, okay? Because if you're calm, your immune system is good, this thing, your yeah. fighting chance is, is higher thing. You see what I mean? I see what you mean. Yeah. But, but, so, so just one. but the person who does this Buddhist way, you have to be very conversant with the Buddha's teaching. Indeed. Yeah. So you have to be making sure you're not just making it up because you're scared of going to see doctors. Uh, because you know, sometimes people can overestimate the depth of their meditation and their understanding of their own body. And I kind of trust myself because I've been meditating quite deeply for such a long time. And I test my knowledge of meditation in front of each one of you. You know, by meditating here with you, by meditating in front of the monks, by them seeing what, what you can do. And so, in a sense, uh, I can trust myself mm. on that. But now can you? Mm. So you've got to test yourself out and make sure you have enough mindfulness. Mm. It's not just being aware, because sometimes these five hindrances, they, they distort your mindfulness. You don't see what's there. You see what you expect to see. And you block out what is just too difficult for you to see. That's why you have to make sure those five hindrances are pretty low in their power. And then your mindfulness of your own body, you can actually trust it. Mm. There's so many examples of how you distort the truth. He wants to say something. 
And this is, uh, I mentioned this, he wants to <laughs> Bernard Carr is another that friend. I just saw him over in Singapore in December. One of his things which he taught me, you know, he, he was a theoretical physicist, a professor of theoretical physics over in Queen Mary College in London University. And he was telling just how he was also the president of the London Psychic Research Society, investigating ghosts and weird phenomena. And some of that weird phenomena is one of his friends did the uh, levitating flower pot experiment. He said he knew the secret of levitation. And so this was a professor and he did this in uh, Imperial College in London, not in front of students or you know, just an audience of the general public, in front of a fellow scientists and professors of physics. And so they were all sitting you know, in the, the bleachers of the lecture theatre and this guy came into the lecture theatre with a flower pot and put it on the bench. He carried it in, there's no strings. And he put it on the bench. You've all you know, seen those university lecture theatres. And he said to make this, had all the cameras and videos. This was a big university, you know, Imperial College in London. It's got a great reputation. But he said that we got video cameras, you know, UV, infrared, everything, because if this works, I want this to have evidence for it. And so he said, but I need to create a good atmosphere for this to work. He said, I want you all to start chanting the Hindu holy word, Om. And he got all these old professors to start chanting, Om, Om, Om. And they did that, and as they were chanting, the flower pot rose into the air. It actually worked. He levitated it. And then it went down again. And then he asked the audience, any questions? And there's a couple of the professors, trained scientists, said, what do you think? I said, what are you talking about? The flower pot remained on the table all the time. They showed the videos, the photographs, of it rising. No, it didn't happen. The point was, it was an impossibility, they thought. So their brain actually blocked it out. The brain just could not see it. It happened, but because it's impossible, it challenges them too much. They couldn't see it. It wasn't bare awareness the awareness had been distorted even before it came to their, their mind's attention. And what really happened was they weren't trying to prove levitation, they were just proving just how we distort what comes in front of our eyes. And what really happened was there was a big electromagnet magnet under the table. It was all done by cause and effect, natural phenomena. And when they turn on a huge electromagnet with so much power and it's so much electricity going through it, of course it makes a noise. It starts to buzz. And they would have seen what was going on if they'd have heard that noise. 
They had to do the om, om, om to actually to hide the noise, to make the trick work. They admitted that afterwards, but they said the main reason for the experiment was to show just how you're supposed to be trained observers. You know, physicists, you're supposed to do experiment and just rely on the data, you know, be an object, objective observer, whatever you call it, and just based on what's there rather than trying to interpret it. But you interpret it before you even see it. So that's one of the reasons why you have to be careful if you're looking at your own body to make sure you're not distorting the data. Okay, you had a question there. Or an announcement. An announcement. <laughs> okay, go <laughs> My on. mind is devoid of questions. But um, five o'clock today, we have the Kalyana Friendship Group. And I just want to hold this book up. This is Ajahn Brahmali's new book, Flowing to Freedom, A Joyous Ride to Awakening. And over the coming weeks, we're going to read from this book and discuss the teachings in it. And Bill's going to keep the aircon on for us. Uh, Aren't you, Bill? Oh, come on. <laughs> Be a champ. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Allow them all to chill out. Okay. So I'm going to finish off now because uh, I do have to have another appointment at quarter to five. So I can't stay very long. That is for the Anukampa. They're having a, a beating together over Zoom. So I've got that all set up in the room, but I have to be in the room at quarter to five. So now let's pay respect to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, and then we can all do what we need to do. Are you doing that, Kani Anamita? Oh, you've been invited already? Okay. Well, it was up to her. Oops. Mm. Stuck. Stay for a few minutes, but you can please.